Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I did a little historic penis research. There's this thing in a jar. It's claimed to be Rasputin's penis. I did throw that ad lib into that episode. I was talking about how small Napoleon's penis was, but then I said, but Rasputin's penis was amazing. I made Matthew McFadden giggle to the point of bending over, which is kind of my mission in life. This is HBO's Succession podcast. This is Roger Bennett. Today's guest is a first for this show. A Roy child who doesn't want to be part of the family business. Yes, Connor Roy, that damage trust fund libertarian Napoleon artifact aficionado, sugar daddy, <laughs> sourdough starter kit gifter, hyper decanter, and presidential hopeful. The older half brother from Logan Roy's short lived first marriage. Connor's lack of evident life skills mean he's off brand for the family. A Roy marching to the beat of a different drummer. And that drummer is wildly unsyncopated. Always eager (laughs) for the world to know, Connor Roy was interested in politics from a very young age. Let's just say, if you want someone to eulogise you at your funeral, aim higher than Connor Roy, people. Lester was alive for 78 years, but no more. Now he is dead. Lester's wife is Maria. They were married for 15 years. Now she is sad. My guest, though, is a remarkable actor, possibly the greatest purveyor of fail sons of his generation. He captures Conroy's delusions of grandeur, esoteric interests and clueless, destructive narcissism in an incredibly nuanced way that's both genuinely moving and hilarious in equal measure. He's an actor I've actually revered for over 30 years. He really is the LeBron James of being delusional, wounded, yet romantic. I'm Connor Roy, and I authorise this message. Welcome to the podcast, oh, Mr. Alan Ruck. Hello, hello, hello. I've never had an introduction quite like that in my life. Actually, I want a copy of that, if I may. I'm going to etch one into stone and mail it to LA, Alan. It is a joy to be with you what a singular bloat your character Connor Roy is unlike any other in the show he's got no interest in navigating the power corridors of Waystar Royco how would you describe his central life main goal avoid pain avoid work and avoid responsibility full disclosure I came of age in Liverpool England 
as a kid obsessed with the United States of America. I admired everything American, Public Enemy, Miami Vice. They lured me here and I spent the summer of 1986 in Glencoe, Chicago's northern yeah. suburbs, Very New nice. Trier High School forever. Yeah. I actually had a poster of Cameron Fry above my bed growing up. You, Alan Rook, are a huge reason I ultimately moved to the United States of America. It should have been Farrah Fawcett. Cameron was cooler than Ferris Bueller. He felt things, even if many of the things he felt were coated in numbness. I think most people are Camerons. There's very few Ferris Buellers walking around the planet, which was interesting because the late, great John Hughes considered himself to be a Ferris. I never saw that. I thought John was brilliant, but I never thought that he was the charismatic dude that could seduce a city into giving him whatever he wanted on his day off. But he could dream it up. He sure could dream it up and put it on paper. You have talked about how John Hughes' methodology as a filmmaker set you up for success. In a 1986 interview, you said, John is almost like having a stand-up comic for a director. When we'd be on set, someone would make a joke. He'd pick up on it and expand upon it, almost make it into a scene which sounds like the same improv methodology that 30 years later would help you land the part of Connor Roy. This is just true of really gifted, confident writers. John was kind of in his way a moody genius, but he was very confident in his writing. He could dash off a really wonderful script in a weekend, in a holiday weekend, ready to go. A shooting script, really. Like most great writers, he couldn't leave it alone and he was always polishing. I think he was a very sensitive guy and maybe took things a little too much to heart in a business where there sort of is no heart, you know. I think he felt pushed around by the studios until he got to the Home Alone days. And then he was basically like, you want me, we're doing it my way. But he was very confident in his writing ability, as is Jesse Armstrong. And so in Bueller, we would do it as written. And then he would say, make something up. And that's exactly what Adam McKay had us do in the pilot of Succession. And it's what Mark Mylod and basically all of our directors have us do now. We do it as written. And then our writers are so prolific, they'll come up with a sheet or two of alternate lines. And they're all brilliant. And then Mark Mylod will always say, as Hughes would do, the way Mylod puts it, is free one, guys, free one. And so basically, it's whatever comes out of your mouth. And sometimes it's crap. But sometimes somebody will get a wild hair in their ass, and they will just go somewhere. And if they take a sharp left turn, and you hang on with them, you just go, you're going on for the ride. It's like Kieran's going, hang on. And you hang on. Sometimes you get something really special. So it's a really fun way to work. It's a satisfying way to work. Indulge me for a second and relive the now semi-legendary story of how you almost didn't audition for the part of Connor Roy because, and I'm a big believer in fate and sliding door moments, you were shooting The Exorcist at the time of audition yes. and wanted to pass up on the opportunity of even trying out for the role. Well, my wife, Mirei Enos, is a wonderful actor. She was working in town on a glamour show, The Catch. They worked in insane hours. They did 15-hour days all the time. And so she was in LA shooting that with our two kids. I was flying back and forth from here to Chicago to do The Exorcist. And I had come home for a long holiday weekend. And she said, I want you to take Larkin, our little boy, to Mommy and Me music class. I want you to come with us on Monday. And so we're getting ready to go to Mommy and Me music class. And Mark Teitelbaum, my manager, calls and says, 
I got this audition for you. It's for an HBO show. You got to go over to Adam McKay's house. And I'm like, I'm going to Mommy and Me music class. I can't. And he said, dude, it's HBO. It's HBO. It's Adam McKay. So I just turn to my wife. I say, I have this audition all of a sudden for an HBO show. And she starts to weep. She's described it as ugly crying. It was instantaneous weeping. She was overwhelmed. She was holding down the fort in LA. She was working a crazy hard job. She was being single parent and she was overwhelmed. And I said to Mark, brother, I can't go. I can't go. I promised my wife. I promised. So then we go to mommy and me music class. You got to leave your phone outside. You're in there blowing on the kazoo and the tambourine. You're giving your all. Oh, yeah. I think we had like the, what is called a guiro. <laughs> and singing about rabbits and bunnies. We came out and there's like seven texts and a couple of messages on my phone. My manager, Mark Teitelbaum, just says, go over there before you go to the airport. Just go over. And I didn't know what the show was. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, the pages came over but, uh, you know, on the phone, but I didn't really look at it. And I said, I don't really know the material. He said, just go. And so I go over and I'm like looking in the pages in the car as I'm stopped at stoplights. And I get to Adam's house and he's there. And Francine Maisler, the casting director, is there. And we're just in Adam's living room. And we start doing scenes. And I said, I got to be honest. I really don't know the material. He said, but you know the idea of it, right? I said, yeah. He said, make it up. Just make it up. That approach to the work started right there in that audition in Adam McKay's living room. How do you know what to do to be Conor Roy in that moment? It's basic crap. Who am I? Who are you? How do I want you to behave? Go. That's it. I think it's very well cast. If you're going to look for like an endearing, quirky, insanely tall, brilliant boy, you pick Nick Braun. If you're looking for a very attractive, snarky, nasty little motherfucker, you pick Kieran. He's actually not a nasty motherfucker, but he can do that. Edgy. I guess I should say edgy. Our Kieran is edgy and we love him for it. So I think mostly I showed up as myself and it's like, this is the situation. This is your father. This is who you are. Start talking. You're just standing up there talking about investing in yurt farm enterprises. That just all just comes naturally, just bubbles out of your mouth. With Connor, they have me say the most insane stuff. And so the deal is sometimes, even if you can't figure out why, you just have to go ahead and do it with a straight face. In fact, there was this one line. It was originally going to be during the hospital scene in episode two of the first season. I'm talking to the old man. He's in a coma. And I whispered to him, Dad, there's this job I want. It's called President of the United States, right? I said to Adam, oh, well, so clearly Connor is putting the old man on, right? And he said, no, he's deadly serious. And that's when I knew. It's like, oh, well, this guy, he's operating in a parallel dimension. Because you said he's marching to the beat of an oddly different drummer. So you just have to assume no matter what Connor says, he's completely sincere. The cryogenics that he was talking about with the old man. He wants to talk to me about cryogenics. What? Wouldn't that just be typical? All the other billionaires are strolling around in new bodies, but not dad, because we were too embarrassed to actually discuss it. And he meant it to be helpful. He wanted to be part of the solution. I think of Connor as performing synchronized swimming moves in the middle of the Olympic 100 meters finals. <laughs> Everyone else is just going as fast as they can and he's just pulling moves. But in succession, as you say, you're working with so many actors who bring differing approaches to the task. You've got the method of Jeremy Strong, complete immersion at risk of danger to self. And on the other end of the range, you've got Roman, Kieran Culkin, 
who says he doesn't like to think too much about his character and simply detaches the filter between brain and mouth and just goes and goes and goes. Where are you on that spectrum? It depends what the situation requires. There's some things, you know, they're frivolous and you know, the more weight you give to it, you're going to wreck it. And there's other things that you have to take great care with. But every actor is different. By the way, how much do you worry for Jeremy Strong? You've said that he forces himself to live in hell for weeks at a time to make this show. I was worried for him because of his process. Jeremy's approach pretty much to everything is to stay in his zone 24-7. But that's what he needs to do. That's how he is comfortable. If he doesn't stay in his zone, he doesn't feel like he can give the best performance he can give. And the show asked him to go to hell every episode. He had to go live in hell. If you make yourself emotionally sick, you will get physically sick. There's no two ways about it. See, the thing is that he always delivers beautiful work. He has his process and you have to honor that. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Kieran Culkin has said that few of the ensemble have created a sense of their own character's narrative more than you, Alan. He said the writers just started to follow what was going on in Alan Ruck's head. Those are his words. <laughs> he said, I think Connor was supposed to be a completely different character. And then Alan showed up with his stuff, his freewheeling imagination. And they were like, yeah, let's make him this guy. Let's dive deeper into the psychology of Connor Roy, which is a dangerous game. A bit like spelunking in flooding caves in the Yucatan. It could be a shallow pool. <laughs> You've worked out this full backstory and it's fascinating. And we've heard Connor was the only issue of Logan's first marriage to that old money wife whose name we don't know. Logan then proceeded to marry the icy lady Caroline Collingwood, produced three children who you call the golden trio, kids who could do no wrong in their youth. Connor would turn up at vacation time and simply realize that he couldn't compete right. He spent his life having people call him slow, idiot, you're insane. That does something to a person. And clearly, when he was young, he was probably suffering from ADHD and some different things. But back then, they didn't quite know how to diagnose what was going on with him. And then he had the reality of his jet-setting star father leave his mother, probably when Connor was around eight. So he was old enough to know that his dad was one of the cooler people on the planet in terms of every time he would go out with his dad, people would open doors and they would bow down. And he knew that he was a little prince. And then the old man left the old lady. And as we've been given little hints along the way, Connor's mom was suffering from some psycho-emotional challenges. So for the next 10 years of his life, he was stuck with this insane lady 
and just seeing his glamorous dad and the rest of the golden trio on vacation. I was an easy target for the other three who built their own language. We all speak Roy, but I speak an older dialect. Oh, it's like Gaelic, one of the old fading romantic languages. It's just dying out because there's not too many of us left that speak it. In fact, I may be the only one. He does seem to genuinely love each of his siblings. His emotional attachment to them may be one of the few things tethering him to the real world. What's that phrase? A poor thing but mine own? I mean, they're my family. They are my people. And it's since I have always been pressed up against the glass looking in at Logan and whoever the current wife was and the other kids, I have always wanted them to just open the door and say, come on in. And every now and then they do. There just wasn't a lot of warmth. You know, there wasn't a lot of, I love you just exactly for who you are. That didn't exist in Connor's world. I've got to tell you up top, Alan Ruck, I do love you for exactly who you are. That speech (laughs) he delivered at Logan's 50th. I just want to say that you've always been my superhero, Dad. You fight the bad guys and you always win. I know we don't get to spend as much time together one-on-one as we'd like, and that makes me sad. But I'm unbelievably proud to be your son. I super love you, super dad. That is almost what one of my nine-year-old kids would say to me, but in their case, probably just to their mother. I mean, it really is beautifully pure yet childish. Talk about arrested development. He's stuck. In many ways, he's that eight-year-old boy who's like, wouldn't it be cool if I had horses and I had a big kingdom? I had a kingdom. You've actually described Connor Roy's brain as, quote, a mixed-up box of trivial pursuit. That (laughs) is the world he lives inside. And he craves his father's approval. The thing that drives all these kids is we want our dad to say, you did a good job. (laughs) No matter what it is. We want the old man's approval. Siobhan, more than anybody, is the most, in a way, ridiculous example because she says, I don't need you. I'm going to be great without you. I'm going to go 180 degrees away from you. I'm going to go to D.C. I'm going to help liberal politicians achieve their dreams. And I'm going to do it without one goddamn smidgen of help from you, Pop. And then the first time he says, Pinky, I would love to have you come run the company. She trips running toward daddy because that's what we all want. I mean, the the thing about old Logan Roy, I actually think he loves them all in his Logan way, but I think he feels guilty about Connor because he probably knew early on that Connor was a little bit damaged, but he was like, I got to get away from this woman. I got to get the fuck out of here. And so he left Connor behind. And so I think Connor has been lavished with big trust fund. I think he's got as much or more money than any of the other kids. He does allow himself to wallow in privilege. In the penultimate episode of season two, when Greg tells Connor he'd probably still get $5 million from his grandfather, even if he were otherwise disowned, Connor is dismissive. You can't do anything with five, Greg. Five's a nightmare. Is it? Oh, yeah. Can't retire. Not worth it to work. Oh, yes. Five will drive you un poco loco, my fine-feathered friend. Connor does love (laughs) the money still, right? Oh, 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 yeah. He's as entitled as the rest of them, as sociopathic, really. Has no idea how the world works. As many of these people at this level 
do not. Now it's captains of industry. Well, a hundred years ago and further back, it was empresses and kings and dukes. This class of people that believes that everything on the earth and in the earth belongs to them. And the other human beings who are not of their class are simply another natural resource to be utilized, maybe exploited, but definitely to be managed. Connor in that way is just as far removed from the real world as the rest of the family. We need to touch upon your relationship with Willa. Can I just say, Sands is one of my favorite plays too. (laughs) Their relationship is clearly transactional, right? Exactly. I'm sure he was just like, you need money. I've got a lot of money (laughs) and I need a girlfriend and you're great. Do you want to be my girlfriend? I mean, Willa likes the money and she likes being able to jet around and buy whatever she wants. And sometimes she gets very scared of like, now I'm going to be alone on the ranch in New Mexico with Connor and I'm stuck here, you know. And so I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I want to produce a Broadway show. So we do that. I love how romantic he is, Alan. The lengths he goes to to ensure she's in the family photos at Shiv's wedding. If you don't allow it, I'm going to punch Tom in the face and I'm going to rip my shirt open. I'm going to take a fucking dump on the ground. I'm going to go apeshit because she's the woman I love. Do you get it? Does Connor know (laughs) what love is? within the context of a relationship like this one? No, I mean, Connor has had a lot of trouble dealing with people if people don't know who he is. If it's like, oh, this is Logan Roy's son. And then I'm very comfortable. It's like, ah, everybody's been put in their place, you know, so now we know the appropriate responses to my being here. But if I have to sally forth out into the world on my own and meet people, I think he's had difficulty. So this guy, maybe he went out on some dates, but mostly it's just been so much more convenient. I just get a call girl and then I can go back to my collection of action figures. But then I found this girl. She's beautiful and she's smart and she's funny. And Connor's getting older and he's tired of being lonely. So he's like, this is great. I know he's crazy about her, but I actually think that she's developing some feeling for him. She's a remarkable girl. She should run for president. (laughs) I think you've just given a spoiler for season three, but let's dive into the politics. The Trump presidency would ultimately impact you pretty much more than the other cast members in terms of the development of your character. Because Connor, who's never held a job, is self-aware enough to know he lacks the life skills to work in a corporate setting at Waystar Royco. But the one job in the world he truly believes he's equipped to rock is that of the president of the United States of America. Yeah, there's some definite parallels. Somebody asked me, they said, do you worry about Connor becoming president? I said, do you worry about obscenely wealthy individuals with no leadership skills and psycho-emotional challenges becoming president? Yes, I do. Connor Roy was interested in politics from a very young age. His platform, the big three, (laughs) is against usury. Onanism. Yes, onanism and doesn't want to pay taxes. I had to look up onanism. I, I did not know. <laughs> what that was and now I do and I shall say it I shall use that phrase for the rest of my life they don't bring that one up enough in the debates do they Alan but they used to joke that President Bush Jr. wanted to use the US presidency as a stepping stone to become Major League Baseball Commissioner <laughs> does Connor Roy just want to become president so his dad will finally be proud of him I think that's as far as he's thought it out if Connor became the president of the United States, his dad would actually need him. The old man would come to me and say, I need you to do me a favor. I'd love it if you could help me with this deal. I'd love it if you could get the heat off of me in this particular area, or if you could promote 
so-and-so into this position because it would really help me. I think Connor desperately wants to be needed. See, the problem with never working in your whole life is there's no group of people who are waiting for you to arrive who need your input and your mind and your instincts. Nobody's waiting for you. Nobody needs you. Mm, That is dictionary definition, modern day presidential. Sincere question for you. What do you imagine Connor Roy does all day? If you judge Connor by a business world metric of any kind, he's a moron. He's got no game and no interest, but he reads all the time. I think he reads history and I think he reads novels that are 100 years old. I don't think he reads anything new that he might have to form an opinion about. Well, I didn't think it was so great or I thought it was really interesting. He wants something like Marcel Proust, The Remembrance of Things Past. Well, one of the great works of all time, because people have already made that decision. They've already given it that value. So actually, Connor reads a lot. It's just he doesn't know anything of current events. And I always bet on a man who builds a collection of classic cocks. <laughs> so I got to tell you the story, because, you know, we are allowed to make stuff up. So during that... Uh, R- Rasputin's yeah, penis. Okay, I did a little historic <laughs> penis research. There's this thing in a jar that actually looks like it once belonged to a donkey. But it's claimed to be Rasputin's penis. And apparently, Napoleon's penis was n- never very impressive to begin with. But some dentist owns it in New Jersey. And apparently, it's like a schmeckle. It's just like this little button of a thing. Time's not kind. I did throw that ad lib into that episode. I was talking about how small Napoleon's penis was. But then I said, but Rasputin's penis was amazing. <laughs> I made Matthew McFadden giggle to the point of bending over, which is kind of my mission in life. McFadden is funny because here's this handsome leading man, classically trained Shakespearean actor, and he'll break up before anybody else. He'll crack, guaranteed. If there's something that's borderline silly in a scene, he's the one that's going to laugh first. As much as he's known as one of England's great period drama stars, he's also known as a tickler for Rasputin penis humour. <laughs> Alan Rowe, you are a remarkable bloke. You've worked steadily since Ferris Bueller, but you've admitted it's not always been easy. You said there's a danger of being seen as a one-trick pony and people had seen the trick. That was your fear. And you said recently about Conor Roy, about Succession, I've been waiting 30 years for a show like this. What did you mean? I did a pilot in 1988 called Shooter, and it was about photojournalists in Vietnam. And if it had gone to series, we were going to shoot it in Thailand. And it was a smart show. It was centered around Vietnam and Washington, D.C. And so it was going to ask some big questions. I always wanted to be involved in something that's ostensibly a drama, but it's just wickedly darkly funny. And that show had the promise of being that. And then, of course, it didn't get picked up to series. And then I spent a decade doing sitcoms, which I enjoy. And before it's all over, my last decade on Earth, I'd like to be like the old guy in the chair in a sitcom to give the best lines to. The old dad. The old dad, the old grandpa. I always wanted to work in a drama that was also just fiercely funny. And now I've got it. It's a pleasure to go to work. It's a very exciting game. It's a joy. It's a joy. I think back to that mommy and me, you flicking off the audition and then just just going for it. And your words, Alan, you said, most of my life has not been about picking and choosing. It's been filled with happy accidents. And I love that notion, Alan. A life 
filled with happy accidents. Whatever that big thing is, some people say God or the spirit of the universe or fate or whatever it is, I swear that I've been picked up and lifted out of one situation and put in another just like this. And if I had to plot it out and try to work my plan about the way my life was going to go, I, I probably wouldn't have been as successful. There's people at a certain level that are offered a lot of different things. What would you like to do? Would you like to do this film? Would you like to do the series? That's never been true. I've always had to go in and meet people and audition. And so it's never that I've picked things so much. It's just that wonderful things have shown up in my life. What a bolt of human joy you are, Alan Ruck. It's amazing to speak to you. I raise my glass to you, your family, your happiness, and to Connor Roy's presidential campaign, Courage. Back at you, back at you. That's it for today's HBO Succession podcast. We'll be back next week with some more Waystar Royco magic. This is Roger Bennett, leaving you with some Connor Roy life wisdom. Cold. The butter is too cold! The butter's all fucked! Now oh, you're fuck watching, you're fucked it. There's dinner rolls ripping out there Potter. as we speak! Potter. I am a laughing stock! There are always issues when you serve this many people, but I think, on the whole, it's going very well. Complacent! You're fired! You're all fired! Idiots! Fucking believe it! Surrounded by imbeciles! I'm Connor Roy, and I authorize this message. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.